Hi, I'm Jarrett Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Elvia Wilkes' 2019 debut novel, Oval, takes place mostly in an experimental eco-house on the top of an artificial mountain in a near-future Berlin. The protagonists, Anya and Louis, are young creative types. Anya is a scientist growing roofs for these uh, mountain homes, and Lewis is an artist. But in this world, artists are employed by corporations to act as consultants who engage in a sort of proto-institutional critique. It's a fascinating novel that, to me, read like a type of design fiction or speculative design. It builds this entirely spatial environment and then imagines the institutions, the processes, and the systems within it. It's no surprise then that Elvia has a background in architecture writing and a keen understanding of space. She studied sculpture when she was in school and got her start as an art writer. In 2012, she co-founded the digital architecture and design publication Uncube Magazine and has written about architecture, critical design, and speculative design for publications like Freeze, Art Forum, Eflux, and Rhizome. She has a new book of essays out called Death by Landscape that also explores speculative design alongside essays about the blurry lines between the natural and the artificial, the design of live action role playing, and literary criticism on the new weird. I couldn't help reading this new collection too as a type of design criticism. So I invited Elvia on the show to talk about how her background in writing about architecture and design influences this work. And the result is an incredibly wide ranging and scintillating conversation on everything from how her novel grew out of her frustrations with art criticism to how fiction can be a type of critical practice to how she thinks about her own writing process as a type of design. We also get into some of the ideas that animate her work and her thinking from the blurry lines around artificiality, the politics of speculative design, and the tension in creative acts, whether that be art making or writing or design, between complicity and critique. Often when we talk about design writing, we view that narrowly, thinking about design criticism or reviews or journalism or things that take place in academic journals. And while Elvia isn't a design writer necessarily, her work is expansive and exciting and a model for other modes of writing through which we can understand design. It was fascinating for me to talk to her about this work through this lens. A transcript of this episode, as with all of our episodes, is available for Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners who support the show each month on our Patreon. Supporters get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, early episodes, and all sorts of other bonus content. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and we offer additional tiers for $5 and $10 a month for additional content and early episodes. You can go to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of this content. Thanks for listening, and here is my conversation with Elvia Wilk. couple of weeks just completely immersed in your work and you are somebody whose sort of subject matter and interests are very wide ranging um you have written both criticism and sort of reviews and personal essays i mean even in the the new book there's a range of 
formats and writing styles. You've written a novel. You have poetry on your website. Um, you know, I'm always interested in people who sort of have this range of interests and modes that they are working in. Is there something that you feel unites all of those? Is there, do you have some sort of critical project that you are sort of working through, through all of these mediums? Or how do you think about that? I don't have an algorithm. I'll start saying <laughs> that. <laughs> um, and I do find that sometimes it's hard to summarize or to suggest a through line because um, I follow what I'm fascinated by and interested in. And that's, of course, contextual and circumstantial. Um, I do think that, um, especially over the last few years, there's been kind of a coalescence of ideas um, dealing with what is at the border of the explicable, what experiences can't be accounted for in normal modes of transmission. Um, you know, I use the word mysticism sometimes, mm -hmm. use the word weird a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's been also pretty consistent over the last few years that I'm kind of obsessed with narratives and fiction in the most mm. expanded sense. But as you say, there's a lot. Um, before, before that, I was, I was an art critic for many years. Um, and dealing a lot with artists who engage emerging technologies, artists who deal with collaborating with the non-human world. Um, before that, I worked for an architecture publication, so I have kind of a background in the built environment. Um, but I, I think that these curiosities coalesce in ways that I often don't anticipate, and I only recognize them later. Right, right. I mean, of course, and that's like that's like always how it is. What's I mean, you said a couple. I mean, I'm I'm gonna do this thing that I hate doing, where I'm gonna just kind of tell you a little bit about what I some of the themes I've seen in in your work. But you mentioned the weird, which I think comes up again and again. This idea of the weird, um, this the, these borders is something that I noticed also, and the way I I was thinking about it is that these borders between sort of like the real and the unreal or the artificial and the natural and the blurring of that um, is something that I, I find really interesting in your work. And then there's this other sort of thing that I'm interested in talking to you about, about complicity and critique that you talk and write about a lot. Yeah. And the reason I say those three is because those three are things that I also think about a lot in the world of design and I read your novel at, when it came out and I knew you primarily as somebody who kind of wrote about architecture and, and design. And so I was wondering about the sort of architecture side of this. It, how does that sort of fit in or, or is that some sort of container for all of these subjects? Also, the other one being the sort of narrative and form, I think, is something that's uh, somewhat architectural and spatial in some ways. Yeah, totally. I'm glad you said complicity versus critique. That's um, I'm glad you you <laughs> you picked up on it and said it back to me. Um, I do think the politics of art making, the politics of spatial design, and the politics of narrative are continually, yeah. um, you know, questions for me and things that I'm really invested in and coming at from different angles. Um, but I can speak specifically to some of the spatial aspects of the novel, um, which came out in 2019. It's called Oval. And um, the one of the like kickoff inspirations for the story was the speculative architecture proposal from earlier in the 2010s by this um, small kind of independent young architecture group called Mila. Um, and they proposed this um, kind of wild speculative mountain <laughs> right, right. as 
solution, quote unquote, for what to do with Berlin's Tempelhof airfield, which is basically, I think, still Europe's largest undeveloped public space. So it used to be, you know, it's known as the Nazi airport. It was an airport until I think like 2001. And since then, it's um, the whole airfield has just been completely left to people's devices, been used for things like it's, you know, it's a public park. The runway is for like skating and biking and all sorts of weird wind sports. There's a community (laughs) garden. There's sometimes pop-up art things and some bars and restaurants. Anyway, so there's just been, it's been a really contentious issue in Berlin for many years. What should we do with the space? Obviously, the real estate lobby wants to put a bunch of condos and shopping centers on, but every time a vote comes up, the Berlin population says, don't touch it. find that incredibly heartening and inspiring, right? How wonderful to not build as the solution to what to build. That's so rare. We don't see that in a hyper-developed urban space. Um, So this joking yet serious, they're very insistent that um, this this was a real proposal. The architects um, to build just an enormous mountain on this airfield was, um, you know, a riff on this idea of undevelopment. So, like, what if we undeveloped it further and we made it just, quote unquote, completely natural? Um, and they took this proposal pretty far. They did consulting with, like, geologists to try and figure out how they would build the mountain. They talked to meteorologists about what it would do to the weather conditions in the city. And then they did this huge ad campaign to try and um, suggest into public, you know, instill the idea in public consciousness that this was really going to happen. Right. right. Um, anyway, this was fascinating to me. I became obsessed with it. I love this idea of a natural artificial installation in an urban space. I love this idea of Berlin as a wide open speculative zone. I lived there for seven years. So this is very much a Berlin book. Um, And as you say, I was working um, as kind of an architecture design art writer at the time. Um, And I was, um, you know, as many people in like, I guess that was the 2010s, um, just really stuck on, you know, what is speculative design? Like, is is it architecture? Is it writing? Is it art? Does it matter? Um, and of course, there was a real economic downturn in Europe at the time. So you had mm-hmm. all of these trained architects um, who couldn't really lend their skills to mega projects. So what could they do? They could imagine things. And I found that really um, generative from a narrative and literary perspective. Well, I, I have so many questions just based on kind of that answer that that you gave. First, for people who haven't read it, can you sort of give the high level... Uh, how do you describe this book to people? You, there, you've already hinted at this uh, mountain, you know, this sort of fictional mountain that is a, in, in many ways a character in the book. But what is this kind of story that you start to build around this? Um, well, so the, the cover copy or whatever, I guess, says something. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to say what your book is about, but I spent a lot yeah. of time trying to do it. So um, you catch me at a good time three years later. when I <laughs> That's how I figured that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the book is about a couple who lives on an eco, like kind of in an eco village on the side of this mountain, which is kind of inspired by, but not exactly mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. as this real fake proposal mountain. Um, it's in kind of an alternate reality. I call it a reality adjacent version right, of Berlin. Right. Um, and they have kind of a cast of friends who are creative professionals. The city is um, 
becoming increasingly taken over by corporations who are buying up the real estate and the public land. Um, the main character is a scientist who works in biotech and her partner is an artist, but in this universe, all artists have become corporate consultants. And I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, again, it's reality adjacent. We're not too far away from it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was listening to an interview that you gave shortly after the book came out and you said that a, a lot of the sort of early writing for the book grew out of your frustrations with the limits of art writing and sort of writing these reviews and word counts and sort of the, the predefined structures. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more and sort of how, how fiction became a way for you to kind of work through those things you were thinking about in the art writing in a new way and to kind of break out of those frustrations. Yeah, um, it's important to say that writing reviews basically was how I learned to be a writer. So I would mm. never say that that was, you know, that that's not a really formative and wonderful right, right. experience. Um, it's also grueling and not very well compensated. <laughs> um, but writing a ton fast um, in a certain way for publication is just really important. It teaches you how to use your muscles and to just right. kind of. Right. You know, experimenting within form is also the only way to figure out how to push against form, I think. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe that's not true. For me, it was the case. Um, and I should say that I studied visual art and I used to make sculptures in college. So I was thinking spatially um, myself in a lot of ways. And I always mm. um, like the way that the narrative and oval is constructed, I think of as a very spatial narrative and yeah. very visual. like there's a lot of. Um, like the city is, is, as you say, the mountain is kind of a character. And, and I was really interested in creating um, space, spatial experiences through the reading experience. I'll put it that way. Um, and the, yes, it is just the case that after some years um, reviewing shows and writing about design conferences and writing about buildings, um, I was just like, man, <laughs> <laughs> yeah want to speculate like there's you know like it's it's really uh, fun to speculate and I also thought like what if I wrote something that was like megalomaniac like I have a, maybe a little bit of a megalomaniac streak not you know too scary <laughs> but like there is something about taking on like not not just bite-sized projects that appeals to me and I thought mm -hmm. what if I write something that takes years what if I write something where I can fit a ton of research and a ton of pieces into um, and the great thing about writing a book length project is that everything starts to become it and like everything you're reading is suddenly relevant. And it is this kind of like crazy red yarn tacked up over the walls, kind of like pattern making state that you enter, I think, where it's just it's it's a really fascinating headspace. Um, and I really just also wanted to learn a new skill. Like it turns out that writing a um, plot is like a skill you can learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, I have questions about that. I, I love that you you said that actually because in the book of essays, in the last essay, a book exploded, which is sort of about the writing of Oval. You talk about also how the characters were really came first and were sort of born out of your own experiences. And I, I was really interested in those two sides, the sort of the plot of your life and what you were trying to work through with these characters that you were inventing with these ideas of art and criticism and, you know, kind of writing, how those start to come together and how, how you could kind of 
use fiction as a form of critique while also advancing narrative. You know what I mean? No, it's really hard. I don't. I didn't know how to do it, and I still don't really know. But one of the crazy things about writing something like in a totally new form is that you think you're discovering all of these problems that nobody ever solved before, but it turns out there's hundreds of years of people finding solutions to these problems. Yeah. Um, so then, once you start reading and in, in search of formal solutions, it's a totally different kind of reading, which I also think is really mm. interesting. Um, so you kind of read um, for like specific technique and, and that's, right. that's a really interesting way of engaging with texts, I think. But um, maybe that's beside the point. Um, yeah, the question of developing characters and developing a world was not just central to the writing process, but also to what I wanted the book to be about, which is about the intersection between like large systems and individual lives, um, mm. what things are beyond individual control, what things seem like they're in our control but are not how relationships and intimate love and friendship is can't can't help but be affected by say violent economic systems and ecological change and (laughs) so that's like um i talk about it kind of as like the mediation between the big and the small or the long and the short or something like that where i was trying to find out how these things could reciprocally influence each other you know, sometimes I when I hear fiction writers talk, they talk about a, and I, I'm somebody who has never written fiction, who reads a ton of fiction, who has tried to write fiction and just, you know, I do not have that muscle yet and, and find it very hard. But I hear, I hear people talk about sort of novels of plot versus novels of ideas a lot of ways. And I feel like you're, and I, I think, you know, most novels are, are a mix of both, um, but you really kind of bring those together. And so I'm wondering, do you see Oval as a work of criticism? Uh, is it a, is, were you able to kind of work out those things that you were wrestling with in the art writing? Were you able to do that or engage with those through shifting from writing about writing reviews or writing about shows to creating something wholly your own? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I think about it as a work of criticism or critique, but I do know that it helped me go directly into the thicket and the tangle and the mm. knot of those problems really, really directly um, in a way that um, I wasn't able to unless I kind of invented this fantasy world. <laughs> right. Um, because of, because of like a distance, you think? I think it's because there's you get to do so much world building and so much, many components are in play. Um, like when writing about an art review, you rarely get to write about, you know, the life of the artist, the life of the viewer, the weather outside, like the materials that were used, the size of the thing in relation to your body, how you had a headache that day. Like it's it's not so holistic and, um, and creating this like, um, comprehensive world, at least inside your mind, I think, and allows this kind of just like collision of scales and collision of different kinds of understandings of of the problem, which is, you know, the problem that <laughs> of contemporary life is is more complicated and maximal than any one person could get into. But but it is useful to be able to think along the lines of, um, yeah, of all of these different aspects of life at once. Um, and um, yeah, as far as like, is it plot or ideas? I think my main and only goal when I set out to write a story was to tell a good story. Mm. And I didn't want to cop out and do what I do think that a lot of like kind of people experimenting with form um, end up kind of 
not trying to write a good story because that's beside the point. But I was like, I want this to be a fun read. Now having done the, written that book, thought through that, did that work, are there things from the process of world building, from thinking about narrative and plot, from character development, that you see has influenced the nonfiction work, the the longer form essays, you know, when you still are doing sort of like book reviews or things like that. Um, what did you learn from that experience of that world building that you're still kind of working through now in other projects? I don't know if this is an like a direct answer, but I, what comes to mind immediately is that I learned about scenes mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's not like a useful answer for somebody who's not also writing fiction or something. But to learn how to tell a story in a scene is a very different skill than to, say, describe something from an abstract perspective or place it in, you know, historical context mm. or something like that. But to actually tell the story of encountering a work of art, for instance, I found to be something that I um, understood or wanted to do more better after having written, um, you know, novels are basically a bunch of scenes. I mean, it's, it's actually interesting because, you know, many of the essays in, in the new book are a series of vignettes of scenes that you're piecing together to kind of tell a story or to make an argument. And that seems very novelistic to me now that you say that. Some of the, some of the formats of, of the essays in the new book. I think so too. And I realized kind of late in the game, actually, while revising that book, that several of the... Um, I guess like the things I had been trying to convey rather than talking about them, I could kind of show them through interactions or through scenes. Mm. Um, And that was kind of like a late shift in the mode of storytelling that I did, which I've definitely carried with me since then. I, I think a lot about sort of the limits of criticism and the limits of writing about I'm in my world design, but for the sake of this conversation, we could talk about culture or, or material culture even. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, you know, maybe this goes back to those frustrations that you were having, you know, five, six years ago, the, the sort of the tools of analyzing, of describing, of, uh, narrativizing these things, um, just the limits of that and the sort of what that those forms can do and then what fiction can do. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on maybe this connects to the previous question, sort of fiction as a form of critique um, Mm -hmm. or in how through world building, you know, you can kind of analyze the, the questions of our day or, you know, the objects that we're surrounded by or the questions that, you know, you're kind of working through in the, the more critical work. Yeah, I think that that's something I'm exploring in the book of essays pretty directly a lot Mm -hmm. of this. And I I still have a hard time answering that. You know, what is the role of fiction? I hope I never have an answer to that because I hope, you know, I hope it's always exciting and always changing and always updating according to the political moment. And that is something I also talk about in the book is like, well, maybe the role of fiction is different in the climate era and in the era of hyperspeed capitalist commodification of ideas than it was 100 years ago. And maybe it is okay to rethink the role of, you know, of narrative and fiction and art in general in relation to politics, given the kind of extinction mode that we're living in. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess thinking about what fiction maybe can uniquely do, or for me, um, I guess um, 
one thing that I say at some point in that essay, A Book Explodes, was that I felt like I gained companionship and company through the process of writing. Right, right. Um, first of all, these characters who accompanied me and then the readers who accompany you in a story in a way that they, I really think reading um, fiction is different process than reading criticism. And so there's a different <laughs> kind of en- engagement and a different kind of companionship you gain through that mm, writer reader relationship. I want to, I want to go back to sort of, you know, something that you said earlier about studying art making sculptures, thinking spatially. Uh, you've written extensively about architecture. You're founding editor of Uncube. I'm wondering how how that sort of spatial thinking and the move from sort of, again, I'm, 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 reducing, <laughs> I'm reducing the narrative here for the sake of question, the move from kind of writing and actually working spatially to, to writing, how that background sort of influences the writing work. Yeah, um, I don't. Ha- I worry that I can't satisfy this question because these things are mysterious. But right. um, certainly, like um, as I mentioned, like with the novel, that was entirely um, an urbanism project to me. Especially at the start, mm-hmm. I was like, "What is happening in Berlin? Like, how is this city evolving? You know, what the hell is going on with private yeah, yeah. Um What the hell is going on with um, artists and their?" levels of engagement with you know the kind of like um, absorption of wealth into a certain class etc cetera, etc cetera. and those questions have never left me so I guess really these questions of how um, um, I guess this is also something that has come up quite a bit since then in my like more kind of like magazine writing um, stuff about like internationalism and stuff mm-hmm. about cities govern themselves and how localism works um, mm-hmm. Really, like during the pandemic, I thought an incredible amount about local space, local activism, right, right. what what really a building is, what a block is, what an apartment is. I'm not alone. We were all thinking about that. <laughs> but this helped me loop back to some earlier questions I had about interiority and exteriority because I really right. should not talk about my like undergraduate sculptures, but they were... <laughs> They were all about hiding. They were all about um, intimacy. They were all about being alone in in intimate spaces and and uh, this kind of like um, like perforations or entry points into private spaces. I I will move on because I know what it is like to be suddenly find yourself talking about undergraduate <laughs> <laughs> visual work that you don't want to talk about. Um, but but I mean, what's what strikes me about so much of your writing and it's really why I wanted to have this conversation is just the the kind of design metaphors that you are constantly using I mean even even kind of way you're talking about form about space talking about the way people relate to systems the the chair and the apartment and the block in the city these are all sort of design questions also and, and obviously I'm saying that coming from the design world i'm interested for you how does how do you think about that word design when you hear that is that something that feels relevant to your work and your interests absolutely um not just because of my super long-standing interest in (laughs) speculative design and that's something that comes up in the new book of essays like quite explicitly um design of say vr experiences design Mm -hmm. live action role plays design of games design of um like self-regulating artist communities also really like 
designers who are making speculative products and how those get co-opted and um, used for different aims. And yeah, we can talk more specifically about that. But I would also say that, you know, writing an essay is something I think of as an extremely designed process. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Like, of course, novels too, but essays to me are um, are like um, almost spatial problems. Like the way that it works is to generate the ideas and then to rearrange them. And I know that everyone <laughs> yeah. like that, but I really write in terms of um, like, it, I wouldn't necessarily call it modular, but it's like discrete parts that will eventually fit together into a proper structure with surface tension. Um, right. And that is, I couldn't phrase it better than a design problem, really. That's so interesting to hear you say that because it's, that's how I think of, I think of writing as an act of, of design also. And I just kind of always assume that was like, oh, because I'm trained as a designer. And so obviously <laughs> I'm going to think about these adjacent things through design. But I think of crafting an essay like laying out a page or laying out a you know uh, a, a book where it's like okay how, what is the hierarchy here what is the flow how do these things sit next to each other it I think like very rhythmically and spatially modularly to use your word I when I teach writing to design students I say you know design and writing are the same thing they're they're both essentially works of collage you're taking these pre-existing pieces that were created by other people words you know punctuation turns of phrase in writing or in design it's images typography color and you're trying to put them together into kind of new permutations to say something new mm-hmm. yeah i agree i do find it to be different than writing fiction and i'm going back to writing long long term long form fiction right now and i'm just mm. really struck by how different the process of assembly is um it's not you know it's not totally divorced in that i'm writing things that could be rearranged and that are often kind of moved and stuff but the essay i really i love it as a form i love it yeah. as, i love it as um a specific special kind of problem with endless permutations and um and i think in terms of sections, I think almost all the essays have a different approach to section making and section breaks, which is not mm. something I get the chance to talk about very often. So I'll just <laughs> go for it. This is the show for that conversation. I think so. I mean, I remember I used to work for an architecture curator when I was really young. And uh, so we did some exhibition design and we did interviews, um, made a book, and it was so it was also publication design. So I thought about exhibition making and publication making as similar processes. Um, and he taught me how to structure information in a really, mm. in, in, a, in, in a way that I think is based on, you know, spatial design and architectural thinking. And I always think about that when I'm structuring an essay, um, what it means to lead someone through space and not just through time. Could you could you talk just a little bit more about that and kind of how, you know, what that actually looks like in the process? Is that something that as you're writing, you are thinking about how these things go together? Are you sort of writing more fragmentary and then putting them together? I think um, I have a process. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to like make this a process conversation, but I'm kind of curious now hearing you say that sort of where that comes in, in the process. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny to reflect on these things because I I rarely step back and think about, you know, it's like, (laughs) because it suggests that I know how to do it and I don't. So I'm not going to. I get it. I get it. Yeah. 
I'm not going to pose myself as a some kind of authority figure here, but I will say that um, collecting material is like I think about it as collect like okay, think about it as collecting a bunch of sticks um, mm. from the ground, <laughs> which which is I read a ton of books, I collect a ton of quotes, and I make an incredible amount of notes. And then I start, I, this is how I think about it. I start rubbing the sticks together. <laughs> I see. Yeah. And I see which ones kind of spark. And then I move them around and I rub different ones together. So the biggest part of the process is actually the gathering of the raw material. And that's, that's, a, that's a really long process. And then the kind of, once you have the stuff, you're kind of like, um, then, then you kind of get to play with it. And so mm-hmm. you sort of build i don't want to extend this metaphor too long but you get to make the a fire you get to build a little structure and you know but it's like you have to have all the sticks first and i think what's interesting about fiction writing is that you often don't have a lot of sticks you just have your brain um and that's like it's not as if i don't do a ton of research but i'm not like i don't have like the notes pulled up next to the document you know what i mean right and i imagine you are also collecting sticks and you don't know what fire they're going to go, they're going <laughs> to use to ignite. You know, you're just like, this stick looks like an interesting stick that might be useful, right? Totally. So and then, then you that have, gets filed away. Yes, an incredibly arcane system of documents as well. <laughs> I want to ask you something that I am not sure you have an opinion on, to be honest, or if you've ever even thought about, but this conversation is making me think about it. I often reflect on sort of how much of design is fiction. Um, there's both the sort of, you know, in architecture, there's the the rendering and the, the sort of, um, you know, the kind of like projection of this is what it will look like, in addition to sort of speculative architecture and that whole history. Uh, in graphic design, there's the mock-up that will show you what the thing might look like. There's this sort of trend in design right now where you you know, you put your websites on like fake computer screens or fake phone screens, you know, with like the hand, um, you know, where you like uh, simulate like wheat pasted posters to show like what the brand will look like on the street. And all of this is a type of fiction making, but even, even, you know, kind of the act of branding is a type of fiction. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that and on the sort of the way these it it seems like it just speaks to these interests that you have about these kind of blurry boundaries between, you know, the natural and the artificial, the real and the sublime, Uh, you know, how the way we kind of consume information in the design of these systems are in many ways fictionalized also. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I have thought about this. It's a great question. Oh, great. (laughs) The first thing that I'll say just as kind of an aside is that I often like to remind myself that almost every building ever designed will never be built. <laughs> like right. every single building except for a very, very select few is imaginative and will stay in the imagination forever or will stay as a design or, you know, in SketchUp or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that is part of the process of making things real is making things that are never, that are just permanently unreal. Um, and that that's actually a pretty like good reminder for how, you know, creative processes work. And mm. it also mm-hmm. is a good reminder of how, um, you just like commercial systems and industries decide what gets made, not people. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think about that a lot. But I also think about, I mean, something I talk about in Death by Landscape is this fact that um, in finance capitalism, um, trend forecasting becomes real news and speculation right. 
finance becomes real finance. So we can talk about these loops between fiction and reality, not just in an abstract sense, but in a very concrete sense. We can say, you know, there was a story told about what might happen to the economy, and that story meant that that thing happened to the economy, right? Um, and that's 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 true, and that's fascinating when you then think of yourself as writing fictions. You know, like it's not it's not this one to one thing. It's not like I wrote this story about. A mountain and now that mountain's going to be built but something about the story might happen um right. and what responsibility do i have if i account for that fact that hyperstition is real i mean this this is maybe a good way to i want to give you some space to talk about complicity and critique which comes up in your work again and again i think this the, you know what you were saying about um you know, sort of the corporations and the systems making the decisions not the the individual people and that's that's sort of a thread of oval and as you mentioned in this world artists have all become consultants for corporations which i thought was just such a brilliant conceit i just loved that whole storyline uh complicity and critique comes up in death by landscape a couple times and this is something i think about all the time in the design world and specifically in design education because you know we sort of implicitly and explicitly blanket statement here um you know, kind of talk about the world-changing magic of design, you know, that, that that design is creating these new futures and design can kind of solve these problems. I'm speaking, you know, very broadly here and, you know, purposefully, uh, you know, exaggerated. And that sort of gets into to designers' heads, yet so much of what design does is just working to maintain the status quo. Uh, it is just yeah. kind of complicit to the systems. And I'm saying this as a designer who used to work in Silicon Valley. And so I've like been on both sides of that. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about your interest in this complicity and critique and, and how you kind of think about that and the the sort of the tension there in in creative practice. Yeah, it's tough. Um, there's a lot of, um, I think, magical thinking about purity states, like mm. that could be an outside to a system or that we could operate completely um, independently of, you know, all, you know, we're talking about capitalism, really, we're talking about political structures, really, we're talking about the, the profit motive, I think, really. Um, it's definitely important and really interesting to me that in design, this really is a different discussion than in art, right? Like, designers yeah. are making things um, that get used. Artists are not making things that get used. They are generating profit and they are generating commodities. And so they are, you know, <laughs> if they're having any level of sales success, they are basically contributing to the banking system. Right. Um, <laughs> and so we can talk about museums as banks. Basically. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, we can, you know, and gallerists are literally dealers. Um, so, but that's, that's different than designing, um, things whose telos is to be um, to enter the commodity system and be used and to transform um, daily life. I mean, that's that's a really different. Um, it's right. it's a different epistemological. Like it's a distinction that goes very 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 far back in yeah, yeah. Western um, history and philosophy. So um, I'm really interested in how those distinctions um, fall apart a lot of the time, um, increasingly. Just because, uh, first of all, of people working across fields, which is wonderful, but also because of um, the way that 
um, I guess, use value is, is changing um, due to the way that commodities are changing. But um, maybe that's maybe that's. Uh, I don't know, in a different direction. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because when I would teach design students in New York and, you know, I would ask them like, why, why do you want to study design? An answer that I would hear often is I liked art as a kid. And this is like, seems a little more stable than, totally. than art. And we would just like look across, you know, I taught at Parsons and we'd just be like, well, right down there is, um, you know, a bunch of galleries, they're making money also like, you know, the, these, these separations are a lot blurrier than we actually think. And, you know, we've decided that one thing is functional and one thing is not, but they're still part of the same system. Exactly. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's very well put. And um, yeah, I, I, th I th also think it's, it's funny that people are like, well, I want to apply my creative skills in a practical way. And it's like, well, um, <laughs> also, also like what does creativity mean to people I'm not really sure because as you you know as you've probably experienced in Silicon Valley the language of disruption and innovation mm -hmm. is is the new language of creativity for much of the world um, mm -hmm. and that's creativity in service of a very specific type of world building and a specific type of profit you know what I mean right and I think that that sort of connects to this tension where where complicity is masquerading as critique you know this yeah. using words like disruption or innovation is, is a way to show or or perform uh kind of critiquing the system or thinking of new ways when in reality often it is you know just sort of complicit in the systems maintaining the status quo which i also think is interesting where they start to kind of perform as one or the other to, yeah. to cover in some way yeah i mean i guess as a student of institutional critique i think i've come down very hard on the perspective that um, any institution with any level of power can recuperate any kind of critique, but not just recuperate it, they completely rely on it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way to self-perpetuate power in an institutional sense is to invite critique and then absorb it. Um, it's completely necessary to the functioning of the system to suggest that there could be opposition and there could be antagonism and then to flatten that out. Like when we look at museums, it's very clear. Um, for instance, you might have um, uh, an exhibition on abolition at MoMA, and at the same time, MoMA's board members might be right, making a right. lot of money investing in prisons. Right. Um, so the performance of critique of, um, you know, incarceration is part of the um, you know, the washing of the museum's real financial activities. So that's that's one way that this happens. But I think it's also that, um, for instance, like um, I did a lot of work researching um, the way that artists in residence work um, uh, at yeah. companies, specifically at tech companies, because that's sort of where some of these ideas about artists and consultants in Oval came out. And I wrote this essay some years ago about the idea of the artist and consultants, um, where I traced the history of management consulting. And the mm -hmm. idea of the management consultant comes in and tells the company, you know, you're doing these things wrong, you need to fix X, Y, and Z. Um, but the position of the consultant has actually been completely invented and is you know, right, right. kind of this Taylorist idea of maximizing efficiency. But the company doesn't have to change anything as long as they've hired the consultant to slap them on the wrist and tell them they did a bad job. Like hiring the consultant is the part is part and parcel of <laughs> fixing right. the company and the consultant perpetuates their necessity 
by always having something else to critique that's never really fixed or it's fixed in a way that doesn't really cost the company anything. So I talk about that as like sort of the evolution of how, how artists and residents are often placed um, within companies like, you know, most major tech companies and a lot of industrial um, institutions uh, have artists who work for them, like from Google to NASA. Um, and those artists are meant to critique, like their job is to come in and be like, you're really exploiting the workers or, you know, like you're, you know, you're really like ruining attention spans of young people. And, the, you know, and the institution's like, awesome. Thank you for telling us that. Now we, we, we don't really have to do much about it because we're aware of what we're doing. Right. I mean, I think... I'm going to I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second so I apologize. I think that's what's kind of so frustrating to me in in the design world is that that's where graphic design especially my world is the most complicit because it's like, well, we'll come in, we'll rebrand for you, you know. And so then you have a new look, you have a new ad campaign, you have a new slogan, maybe you have a new fancy name. That's the that's the we've changed where we've evolved you know that's the complicity again it just makes me wonder what what does critique look like in the design set design is the consultant in that that metaphor what what does what does design critique in that setting look like and it's so hard for me to kind of imagine that because i just i become dystopic (laughs) you're not alone it's hard not to become dystopic there um I think there are avenues but one like one recourse that I have and I like to remind myself of this every day is that like we're not our jobs and that we can have many lives and we can do many things and that we are all complicit to a degree um and that there are things that we can do with that complicity and within that space but there's also just completely other stuff we can do like it's okay to it's okay to make money one way and have a different, you know, antagonistic relationship to mm. us in a different way. Right, right. That was a good. That was a good turn. To I was really worried we were going to end this on a on a down <laughs> note. No, um, let's pick it up. I have two more questions to 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 wrap up. I'm curious, kind of, what's next for you? You have this this essay collection that came out. You just said you were writing some long term fiction again. I mean, without giving too much away, what else are you working on? And also just what other things are you thinking about right now? Well, what I'm working on right now is a new novel. And um, I don't know what it's about yet, but it's about insomnia and it's about lockdown. So again, Mm. it's very spatial. It's about claustrophobia and it's about um, sort of, I guess I would say like the extremely complicated division between sleeping and waking in the time that we live in. It's just, um, I don't really understand what those binary states mean anymore. And so I'm doing some super interesting research into um, um, insomnia in Victorian times where it became Mm. a supposed epidemic due to what they imagined was um, a new hyperspeed technology keeping up, keeping everyone awake all night. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, wow. um, yeah, I'm thinking about conditions of sleeplessness. Can I, I know I said I had two more questions. Can I ask you another question about that? Um, yeah. when you, you said when you were working on Oval that, you know, some of that was to kind of see what it was like to write something at book length that took years to think about plot and character development to kind of do these things you hadn't done before. Are there things you haven't done before that you're trying to do in this book or are there you know sort of other modes that you're interested in that these ideas were the the best way to kind of enact those 
yes, I am trying something new process wise, which is to write in uh, one document and start to finish. I've uh, never done wow. that before. Speaking of a design problem, this is a really strange yeah. way to do it. Um, and I'm also trying to, um, how should I say this? I'm trying to keep it as tight and claustrophobic as possible. So rather mm. than doing a mega world building project, I'm interested to see how much world building you can do with, say, only four characters in an apartment. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. It's also interesting to kind of think of, of a, you know, a, the design problem of how the tools shape the writing. You know, how will that be different that this is all in one document? How does that actually change how you write or what you write? Have you noticed any of that yet? Yeah, it makes, um, it's, um, it, it's more terrifying because you, <laughs> you lose things, right? Like you lose track. And um, it's also... Uh. Um, it, it's making me less precious and I'm not a very precious writer. I'm a pretty heavily like redrafting writer, but this is really pushing me to a new level of not being, um, attached to certain like turns of phrase even. Mm. I think that's a really great way to wrap up. And so I want to ask you the last question that I end all of these, which I'm especially excited to ask you because you are such a wide reader. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Oh, good question. Well, I just read Becoming Insomniac, How Sleeplessness Alarmed Modernity. <laughs> it's, like, um, that's, right. that makes sense. it's such a good book. It's full of just incredible stuff. Um, I don't think that's like for a wide readership, but it was definitely <laughs> for me. Um, and let's see, I just read um, all the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward C. Oh, yeah incredibly enjoyable and just like you couldn't find a better teacher for dialogue um yeah. it's just it's bananas his dialogue i've never read anything like i'm due for a reread of those it's been a while since i, re I read all of those back to back a couple of years ago and just was obsessed for a while i was telling everybody to read them um yes it's hard i mean it's that that's the kind of books you just want to literally start talking about immediately um yeah i will also plug this weird mid-century science fiction author john wintham whose books are being mm. reissued by modern library right now he wrote the classic day of the triffids which has been made into movies a couple of times but he also just wrote some really really bizarre kind of like alien invasion stuff that i'm just loving oh wow does are you able to separate sort of reading for pleasure and reading for research or is there a difference between those for you um nope i read for um pleasure all the time and it's always also work <laughs> <laughs> right, right. i love that uh that is that is such a great i you did not let me down with your answer for what you were reading i knew it would just be all <laughs> over the place it is the place there's no cohesion but in my mind this is like a perfectly orchestrated like, set of reading yes. materials and and when I'm sure when we read the new novel, it will all make sense. We'll be like, oh, there's the alien invasions. That's that's how that came in. Oh my god, completely! Uh, it's already worked its way in. I love it, uh, Elvia. I am uh, such a big fan of how you think about things. I think um, you know. I don't know if you would call yourself a design writer, but I think you're just a, a such a smart and thoughtful writer of design in the design world. And it was so nice to kind of hear how you think about all of this and, and even your process a little bit. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for being on the show. It was a total joy talking to you. I really enjoyed stretching and talking about new things. Yeah.
This episode was recorded on August 26, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Thank you.